This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. This episode is brought to you by Genesis Aerosystems, a Moog company and leading provider of autopilots for rotor and fixed-wing aircraft. The Genesis STEC 3100 Digital Autopilot provides increased safety, decreased pilot workload, and is approved for over 200 makes and models. To learn more about the STEC 3100, visit genesis-aerosystems.com. That's genesis-aerosystems.com. I had started to do a turn when the engine stumbled to try to come back to the field, the so-called impossible turn. When that stall light came on, I, I gave up. I, you know, it's just like, no, I've got to save myself. Fly the airplane, fly the airplane, fly the airplane. Welcome to another edition of There I Was, a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in interesting situations, and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. On today's episode, we have Jeff King. Jeff King is a general aviation pilot He's a student pilot in 1985 and remained a student pilot until he finally got his license in 2003. He owned a Cherokee 180 and a Cherokee 6, an Aztec, and now he owns a Baron 58. He's IFR qualified and multi-engine qualified with about 1,200 hours total flight time. He had about five or 600 hours when the incident occurred that he's gonna to talk to us about today. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Richard. So Jeff, you and I shared emails uh, with a, a mutual friend who advised me of an incident you had a few years ago in your Cherokee 6, and it just seemed a fascinating story, and you agreed to share it with our audience. So if you don't mind, tell us your story. Sure, Richard. Well, this was in 2009. At that point in time, I owned my Cherokee 6. At that point, I had about 400 hours on, on that particular aircraft, and I used it for business and personal travel. So at that point, it was in September, I was going to visit my sister, and we flew over from Holland to Troy, Michigan. And Troy is a kind of an urban airport, a little bit north of Detroit, Michigan. And it was an uneventful flight. We, you know, the Cherokee 6 has four fuel tanks, and we burned down the first two fuel tanks and landed in the left hip tank. No issues there. We rode my bike to my sister's and then uh, came back and decided to... Uh, Go back home. We were going to stop at uh, Hillsdale to get fuel. That's another airport that I was based out of at that point in time. And when you say we, Jeff, who was in the airplane with you? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm a ham radio operator. We use that word we sometimes. So, <laughs> okay. <laughs> so no, I, I. Okay, got it. You were solo and flying over to see your sister, who I know you shared with us was sick, and you were flying over to visit her. And then your plan was to visit her for a bit and then turn around and depart for home that same evening. Is that right? That's correct, and, and to come home that evening. So we rode our bike back to the airport and uh, did a run-up, and everything seemed fine. I had been doing short-field takeoffs just as, as a habit, even though this was not really a short field, and I was about 1,000 pounds under gross. 
So we went ahead and did take off. Uh, the 20 degrees flaps uh, went up pretty fast. Then we pitched over from VX to VY. And immediately after that, we, the, the engine started to stumble. And then we lost all power. It was, of course, it was nighttime at that point. We were on the eastbound runway, uh, runway 9 and 27 at that particular airport. And started to turn back to the field. And then all of a sudden, the stall light came on. And we're at roughly 300 feet at that point in time. At that point, you know, when your engine fails, or I've had engines stumble with the Cherokee 6, it's a four-tank aircraft, and if you're going to get any kind of range out of it, you would run it out of fuel at altitude, you know, and the engine would stumble. When I talk about that, you're, you're eight, 10,000 feet up, always have something picked out ahead of time. So your, your, your heart would always flutter. I don't know if anyone's ever not changed a tank, either on purpose or not, and your heart flutters well. This time, it wasn't on purpose. This time, I wasn't 10,000 feet. This time, I was up 300 feet. So you've got that moment where you, oh, my gosh, you know, a couple seconds, you know, elapses. It seems like a couple minutes. So short field takeoff technique, so your nose is relatively high. You're climbing out at uh, VX airspeed. You're just beginning to push over to capture VY, and your engine stumbles. And then very shortly thereafter, you see the stall light. Right. So at that point, when the stall light came on, thankfully, my training, at least I feel like my training kicked in at that point. My instructor, BFR instructor Jason Dotson, from years past, had always messed around with me, I guess, for lack of a better word. He would fail the engine on me, and he'd always tell me, if you lose your engine on takeoff, the insurance company owns the airplane. What he meant by that was that you worry about yourself. You don't worry about your airplane. You worry about yourself. So when that stall light came on... I just pushed the yoke forward. Just I didn't see what was outside. I didn't, you know, I didn't even look outside. I just pushed the yoke forward. Was that a fairly aggressive push, Jeff? Relatively hard, or uh, talk us through that that push. Yeah, you have to understand this whole series of events probably was 15 to 20 seconds from the time I rotated to the time the engine stumbled, maybe 10, 15 seconds. So there there was a lot going on in a very short period of time. So I would say the push was relatively hard where I pushed it forward. Yeah, when I was Pitching over at the top, I had dropped some flaps out as well. I took off with 20 degrees. I dropped in 10 when I went to VY. And then I immediately pulled some flaps in as well once I was pitched down. Because I knew there was there just was not a lot of space in front of me. And, and I was correct, there wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm pitched down. I'm seeing a portion of the Walmart parking lot in front of me. And then a field beyond that. I just pushed it down hard. Tip. I think one of the witnesses said he went into a dive. And I did because I did not have a lot, of, a lot of space to land that airplane. Jeff, how was the visibility here? So you said you're up about 300 feet when it stumbles, you're pushing over. So now you can see over the nose. I mean, you only had a couple seconds to make a decision here on where to go. Was visibility an issue for you at all? Visibility was not an issue. The only fortunate thing with this particular field was I, my in-laws lived in the area my sister lived in the area, so I had used the airport quite a bit. So I knew there wasn't a lot of choices to go if you had a problem. Yeah, that looking at uh, where you were in that area, I mean, it's basically the Detroit metro area. It's pretty crowded around that airport for sure. Right. It's a industrial, a mixed industrial, commercial, retail area. Yeah. And a Cherokee 6 has a, a relatively long nose. So when you're pitched up like that in a, a short field takeoff, you pitch over visibility over the nose for at least a little bit can be an issue. 
but you pitch over to start capturing a glide, or really, you weren't interested in capturing a glide. You were really just interested in preventing the stall at that point. Yeah, at that point, it was just it was just muscle memory, I guess, for lack of a better word. Where then your training kicks in, and you're you're doing the things you're supposed to be doing, and not thinking about it. So I, I just I saw that stall light come on, and I thought about departure stalls. I mean, again, it was such a limited period of time. I remember on the way down, the, the prop was rotating slowly, probably from the wind. I'm not sure that the NTSB thought possibly the engine was starting to, to catch again as I was coming down. But at that point, I stopped doing any of the checks I was doing, and I just committed to the landing and trying to retain control of the aircraft. And was the Walmart parking lot straight ahead? Did you have to make a slight turn to get there? Where was it in relation to the attitude of your airplane? Well, it, it was to my left, and I had started to do a turn when the engine stumbled to try to come back to the field, the so-called impossible turn. Right. When that stall light came on, I, I gave up. I, you know, it's just like, no, I've got to save myself, fly the airplane, fly the airplane, fly the airplane. What I saw at my windshield, again, was pretty surreal. I saw a white van. There was a very narrow strip of the parking lot that was free of cars. I saw a white van ahead of me turning to the left. It turned out it was a white car, but from the altitude, it looked like a white van. And I just basically, I was going, oh, my gosh, I hope he turns. I hope he turns because that's the only option I have. To the left of me was the store, a whole bunch of parked cars. And to the right of me, I, it was dark. I really couldn't see to the right of me. So I had to go where I could see. Mm-hmm. Thankfully, he turned. It probably wouldn't have been an issue for him anyways. He was so far away. But still, if you saw the photographs that I sent, there was uh, like an alley behind a row of buildings. And I was kind of aiming for the alley. The alley was like behind a, a strip mall behind a bunch of stores. The Walmart I was passing over. Then there was a, a parking lot underneath me. Then a strip mall that had a, a alley behind it. I was trying, trying to edge between there and the field, more or less. Again, that turn was roughly from the time your engine sputtered, you start turning. You were turning back with a sputtering engine. Then pretty soon you realize the engine had quit. You were about to stall. Yeah. You push over. And so that was uh, about a 90-degree turn away from runway heading to head towards this parking lot. Is that about right? Well, I would say about 60 to 70 degrees, but yeah, roughly. Okay. Yeah, it was still left and uh, more or less north. Okay, and you really have limited options. You push down to prevent the stall. You've seen the only real open space is this parking lot, so you're pushing to keep flying airspeed and to get into this parking lot. Did you have any ability as you came down for lateral control to miss, you know, lighting or cars or anything like that? Or are you pretty much really minimally guiding the airplane at this point? I had enough control to put a hard slip in also to try to get down. Um, Got it. Okay. Yeah. You can see the parking lot quite well. But as far as being able to see what's around you, you really couldn't. Like I, I hooked the uh, right main of the, of the landing gear on a shopping cart corral when I was flaring and I didn't even see that. Yeah, I saw that in the video you sent. And by the way, for our listeners, we'll have the pictures that Jeff sent and the short video clip from the parking lot that shows a portion of the of the crash up on our website. So that is interesting. So you turn it, you see the parking lot, but you're too high. So now you're into a pretty good slip to try to lose that altitude to get down to the parking lot. And then you come in and take it from there. So I'm pushing down hard, just starting to flare and I didn't see the shopping cart corral, but it, it hooked my right main, as I said, uh, tore the, the right main off, and it went, it went, it and all its shopping carts went flying up in the air. I, I guess the, 
at this point, it starts to become, I mean, the whole thing was surreal, but then it becomes extremely surreal at this point. I, I guess the, the first impression, the aircraft landed pretty hard. Cherokee 6 is glide like a brick. Um, and, of course, I had lost my right main. I didn't know it, but I'd lost my right main, so I hit down pretty hard. I was a little bit stunned for a moment when I hit the ground. Then it became really surreal, like I said. I, I, I imagine yourself on the expressway driving your car at about maybe 70 miles an hour, and you go through a bunch of shopping carts. I mean, they're flying up all around the airplane. Um, that was pretty bizarre. Then I'm sliding across the parking lot in this aircraft. You know, I don't have any control. I mean, there's no steering control at all. I mean, I don't have my right main. I'm, I was hoping to go between the strip mall and then the, the right side of the parking lot. But the plane started to go to the right um, because there was no right main. It was dragging. Thankfully, to the right, was there was nothing to the right other than uh, an embankment, another parking lot, about a five-foot drop, roughly. So I'm sliding along. Okay, I think I'm going to live at this point. I'm shooken up, but, you know, all my body parts are attached. The cabin's intact, which I got to say about Piper, that cabin was, was stayed intact throughout the whole accident. So all of a sudden, I see this bright white light to my right side. I, I go, oh, my gosh, you know, uh, what is this all about, you know? That lasted for about a second, and I'll, I'll get back to that in a moment. And then I shot over the parking lot, over the embankment, which is about a five-foot drop. That was another big bump. And then finally came to a stop at the edge of the second parking lot right at the field. Well, back to that white light, uh, as they say. I'm not really a religious person, but apparently that was the tip tank getting sheared off on the um, the curb of the, of the first parking lot as I went over the embankment. The Cherokee 6 has a fiberglass tank on it so it totally opened it i had 17 gallons in the right tank it totally opened the tank up before an accident there's a number of things you're supposed to do we're taught you know open the door up turn the electrical off well i didn't turn the electrical off i had an incandescent light bulb on the right tip and as soon as the tip tank opened up and of course the nav light broke and immediately caused a fireball well thankfully the fireball and the gasoline got left behind and i kept going so i, I come to a stop I look out my right window, and the right there's a small fire in the right wing. Well, I didn't know I'd lost all my fuel. It was just what was left. So I scramble out of the airplane. I literally, uh, you can see one of the pictures where the, the right main wheel is sitting next to the right wing. I literally had to dodge the right the right wheel. was bouncing across the parking lot heading at the airplane. I had, to, I had to dodge it when I got out of the airplane. As the airplane was a small fire in the right wing, I didn't know this, the fuel situation. There was, you know, And, of course, I saw a huge fire behind me. I just got away from the airplane at that point. So you survived the crash. You step out, you dodge the uh, right landing gear still bouncing down the pavement towards you. And then what was your next action from there? You're standing there looking at this uh, wreck of an airplane and thankful that you survived it, thankful that the airplane protected you. And then what'd you do, Jeff? Well, at that point, I ran up the embankment back onto the main Walmart parking lot, and there was a few people there. And I, I guess one of them did, they asked me if the pilot was okay. And I said, well, I was the pilot. I guess I'm okay. Everything's trying to register at that point. And um, I asked them to call 911. They already had called 911. And uh, we just waited for the uh, police to get there and so forth. What an interesting ordeal that happened so quickly from your estimation from the time you released brakes till... I don't know, maybe 30 seconds, 45 seconds later, you're standing up on that embankment looking at your airplane, thankful that you survived it. Hey, listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? 
AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the general aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org. You'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. So uh, it was an engine failure shortly after takeoff. Do you know what happened? What caused the engine failure? Well, of course, initially, I really didn't know. There was a lot of different theories. The uh, FA in my interview, we, you know, we, we, we initially thought, and I still think that it was a, a low fuel situation in the left hip tank, and it unported. The NTSB couldn't be definitive as to what they thought it was. They, they thought, well, you, you had no fuel in the main tank. Well, of course, I knew that. One of their theories was either the main tank was out of fuel or the, uh, the left hip tank imported, which is what I, what I felt. Honestly, in retrospect, you know, I went, went to visit my sister and she had cancer and it was a lot worse than I thought it was. In fact, I was told at that point they thought she was going to pass away in a couple of days. This was a situation I never had to deal with. Someone dying was close to me. My, my father had passed away, but this was a little bit different. Um, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have been flying that day. I don't know exactly what the issue was. I'm pretty sure it was some form of pilot error. You asked me what, what happened. Well, I, it was fuel starvation. As to why, uh, low fuel in either the left hip tank or no fuel in the main tank. But I believe it was the left hip tank. That's what I was flying on. But in any case, in retrospect, I, I think mostly it was just pilot error based on just uh, I should not have been flying that day. And it, it just didn't, it didn't hit me right, right away. And I shouldn't have been flying, I think. Well, it's so hard to recognize that dynamic. So you're thinking it's pilot error based on where you had the fuel selector and the type of takeoff you performed with that fuel selector in that position, that it was fuel starvation. But I like where you headed, Jeff. You went to a deeper place, which is, well, why would I overlook that? Why would I make that mistake? And it's because of the emotional or the mental state that you were in when you flew, and that is so tough to recognize and it's so tough to recognize the impact of the state that you're in. You just fly in to visit your sister who you know is sick, but you learn that she's really sick. And now just a couple days perhaps from, uh, from passing away. And the toll that that takes on your emotional and your mental state and your ability to fly and make decisions, if it were easy to recognize, that would be one thing. But it's hard to identify that and hard to recognize the impact of it. Well, in that situation, it was just because it was such a circumstance that, you know, you just don't deal with this on a daily basis or even a yearly basis. You just don't deal with this kind of thing. I felt fine. The other thing was the takeoff. I said I, I do short field takeoffs. This was far too aggressive of a takeoff. I mean, in the sense that, you know, I was a thousand pounds in a gross short field takeoff. I, I mean, there's no way around it. We, we can agree to disagree on what the pilot error was. And I'm not talking to you. I'm talking about just the, the, the accident. But it was, it was a form of pilot error regardless. And how do you feel in retrospect, too, about a aggressive short field takeoff at night? It was a, a bad decision at that point in time. But I'm even more so that I baby the airplane when I take off. Whenever I leave an airport now, I'm multi-engine rated now. And, and, and multi-engine training emphasizes primarily what do you do when you lose an engine on takeoff? I mean, that's the most critical phase of multi-engine. So mm -hmm. I'm always picking a spot whenever I take off, where can I put this plane down to do the least amount of damage to me and the least amount of damage to other people, regardless of what I'm flying. I'll pick out a spot. You know, it could be a field. It could be a parking lot. Before I take off, where I can put the plane down if something happens. So there's a, actually a program one of the, the beach pilots developed 
I wish I remember the name of it. Well, it's a checklist. And there's different factors, like is it IFR? Is there icing? Is it low ceilings? Are there emotional issues mm. that I go through to determine go and no go? I, I'm a lot more conservative. I, I wouldn't say I was not conservative then, but I'm I'm quite conservative. My wife would verify that we on a number of occasions we've rented cars, and part of that is you know, your emotional state. And even if you think you're fine, even if you feel fine, and I felt fine that night, you know, but I shouldn't have. That seems to be, Jeff, the, the big takeaway and the lesson learned that we can all um, take from this is that you had a significant change in your personal life, a significant emotional event, if you will, learning about your sister's state, and that that was really unrecognizable to you of how that may have influenced you and how that may have impacted your decision-making and so the only way to guard against it maybe is, like you've done, to recognize when you're faced with something like that, the answer is don't go flying. Exactly. Because you won't be able to recognize the impact. And I'm reminded, I think I shared with you a story uh, called No Greater Burden of a man that shared a story with us about when he went flying in a similar situation, learned of his mother, or I think his mother had recently passed or something similar and left his wheels down during a seaplane landing and flipped, and uh, unfortunately his son perished. And it was a similar takeaway of the emotional strain that he didn't recognize would impact his decision-making. If something's happened to you and you feel fine, that doesn't mean you feel fine. That doesn't mean you can make a good decision. You have to gauge it on what should be occurring. Like when my father passed away, I didn't cry for a year after. I mean, I, I don't know if I should be ashamed of that or what, but it was in, it was in my mind. And that's kind of the takeaway. It's not just how you feel, it's how you should feel. What's in, yeah. in you know, and often euphoria or uh, is a counteraction to feeling bad. I did want to mention a couple things here, too, that really contribute. And I, I think I was very lucky with the accident. I mean, after the engine stumbled, everything up to the point the engine stumbled, it was, well, boy, I made some mistakes here. And like any accident, it's rarely one factor, it's multiple factors. It seemed like you did several things well, though. I mean, beyond the, the initial stuff we talked about in the, in the pilot error, from there, uh, it seemed like there were some uh, impressive things that you did and some positive lessons learned that we can all take from this as well. Can you share those with us? I think the most positive thing I did is I put shoulder belts in the airplane before yeah. I even flew it. I mentioned that the right main was pulled off by the shopping cart corral. Also, the nose gear was sheared off by the curb I hit. So we're talking about some relatively serious deceleration events here, G-forces, that would have pushed me right into the panel of the aircraft. There's been a number of accidents I'm aware of. I don't want to mention that one just recently occurred. I'm not going to mention specifically because the report's not back. But there's a number of accidents that occurred where the aircraft was intact and the pilots passed away because they didn't have shoulder belts. Um, the belts I had, they were inertia belts, so I, you know, they were comfortable. I wore them, but they worked. They worked so well, I had quite a bruise on my shoulder. So that's how hard it grabbed me. The other thing that went right, of course, was I retained control of the airplane. I think that's mm -hmm. really critical. I mentioned I got my multi-engine rating after the accident. The biggest dread of uh, a multi-engine pilot is a VMC roll, where you basically roll the plane over, and you often crash out, both out of control and upside down. Mm -hmm. So I think maintaining control of the aircraft so you can manage the energy of the aircraft, you know, where it's going to go, where it's directed. Like I mentioned, I was, I was aiming between a, a building and a field that I couldn't see. I was trying to manage the energy. Well, let's put it down this empty alleyway 
yeah, I, I saw a dumpster. I was going, well, I might hit the dumpster, okay? But hitting a dumpster is a lot better than hitting a building. It's a lot better than flipping the airplane, going out of control. So that was the kind of the takeaways that I want to emphasize is you got to have to enter, you know, manage your energy, slow the aircraft down and keep control of the aircraft. Yeah. I just see in the video and, and talk to you, you did an exceptional job once the engine quit of maintaining control of the airplane. When you saw that stall light immediately pushing it over. And then I think what was critical, Jeff, is accepting the range of decisions that were in front of you. You could have uh, hoped to turn back. You could have hoped to find a different area, but you sort of bit the hard bolt of reality of this is the situation and I'm going to fly this airplane into this parking lot, even though it's not long enough to land and all that. Retaining control of the aircraft, making those tough decisions so that you are retaining control of it all the way to the very end, just like Bob Hoover reminds us, fly it all the way through the crash. It seems like you did that very effectively to include, at a very low altitude, a pretty aggressive slip to make that parking lot. Yeah, I, I just saw it in front of me. I kind of joke around, you know, the, the Cherokee 6, The I think from memory, I think it's about six to 700 feet the aircraft can land in. I, I think I came to a stop about 400 feet. I just had to leave a few parts behind, that's all. <laughs> but your incident also uh, reinforces a point that we try to um, make here in the Air Safety Institute, which is once your engine quits and you've got to find a place to put your airplane down, Ideally, you find a runway or a pavement or a field where you can land and roll out. But if that's not the case, then you really just need to find a space where you can dissipate the energy over about two to 300 feet is really all you need to survive somewhere in that neighborhood based on your speed. It's something for us all to keep in mind if we're ever faced with that really difficult decision where there is no great place. All you need is two to 300 feet. You never want your emergency to result in someone else's disaster. So you're always trying to move away from involving any other people or any other assets. And once you do that, relatively small space, and as long as you can avoid the sudden impact, which is usually occurred by uh, a stall or loss of control, then uh, you're likely going to survive it. I fully would agree with that. The other thing that I kind of consider, and I, I've seen pilots uh, on the forums debate, you know, insurance, you know, the cost of insurance. I actually think that having full coverage, and I, I already mentioned it's the, air, the insurance company owns the airplane, but having, it seems maybe trivial, but having full coverage insurance is a good safety thing because you're not thinking about the airplane. Oh, I, I want to turn back and save the airplane. You're not thinking about that. You're thinking about, I want to save myself avoiding tragedy on the ground. Yeah. What an incredible story, Jeff. Your lesson learned for all of us about the emotional events that happen in your life and how hard it is to detect that and the impact it may have on your flying is really powerful. I thank you for sharing that, and I congratulate you on once that situation did happen, flying the airplane through it and surviving it like you did. Thank you, Richard. There's one other thing I did want to share was, uh, well, two, two things. Well, first of all, I, I mentioned my sister you know, was going to pass away from cancer, and she ended up doing that. And for better or for worse, I was there because of the accident. I was, I was with her, and it probably would not have happened. So, I mean, if there is a, a, a silver lining, that would have been it. Yeah. The other thing was I uh, wanted to thank Don Frank. He, he, I, I found him through your AOPA legal plan, and he helped me through the whole aftermath of the incident. And uh, I can't say anything more glowingly about the AOPA legal plan. It's, it's a, it's, everyone should have it. 
and um, it just helps you with so many things. I mean, not, not just accidents, but so forth, just to give a pitch for AOPA. Well, I'm thankful to Jeff for sharing his story with us. It's a powerful lesson learned about uh, your emotional state and how that can impact your decision-making, your ability to fly. And my real takeaway from that is you can't recognize it. You're very unlikely to recognize the impact of your emotional state. So if something like that happens in your life, to realize I shouldn't be flying even though I don't necessarily feel anything. Thank you for listening to another edition of There I Was. Alongside our producer, Tyler Pangborn, I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. If you're enjoying these podcasts, hit the subscribe button and recommend us to your friends. If you can, consider a donation at aopafoundation.org. That's aopafoundation.org. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.